Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Thanks for being here today. Um, enjoy, just like Josiah is doing in the back, enjoy some room to stretch out. This morning, we've got about 70 students up in Prescott together at a retreat. Uh, so be praying for them as, as a lot of people connected with the university are uh, up for a retreat this weekend. We are here, though, and we're in Exodus chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, please get that out and turn with me there. And if you don't have a Bible or maybe you're new to the Scriptures, underneath the seat in front of you is a blue Bible, and you can grab that and turn to page 26. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take that with you. Last Sunday, as you know, we began our journey through the book of Exodus. It's a, it's a book of epic significance in the whole biblical story. So thanks for being here to hear what God would have to say to us. In uh, the first chapter, we saw that despite opposition, God multiplies His people according to His promises, that He is committed to when He says He will do something, He will do it. And many times in the book of Genesis, that's the promise He made. And we begin to see in the first part of Exodus that being fulfilled. Genesis recounts that God made a covenant, a promise, an oath to Abraham, and then to his son Isaac, and then to Isaac's son Jacob. He pledged that through their ancestral line, they would become a new people, they would be God's people, and eventually they would live in a land that He would supernaturally give them and be a display to the world of the kind of God He is. As of the end of Exodus 1, though, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all dead even Joseph, and they are multiplying, but they're living in Egypt. And the problem is they're stuck in slavery. Pharaoh has ordered all the Egyptians to murder all the Jewish baby boys because he's after a campaign to make sure they quit multiplying and eventually they are no more. And that brings us to verse one of Exodus chapter two. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Levi, as you may remember from the start of the book, is one of Jacob's 12 sons. Your genes are not named after him. That's a fable. The 12 tribes of Israel, those tribes are all named after those 12 sons. And so house of Levi simply means the descendant, a descendant of Levi. Now, it seems like a little useless detail at this point in the story, but here's, here's a clue. As the story unfolds in the Old Testament, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, those will become the spiritual leaders in Israel, and eventually they'll become the priests over the temple. So two people from the tribe of Levi got married. Now, Remember the situation they're in. It's so easy just to skip past a little detail like that in verse 1. I think it's really interesting. If you stop to think about it, here's a people who are under horrible enslavement. And there's a horrific genocidal edict over their heads. Who's got marriage on their mind? in that kind of circumstance? Well, apparently these do. 
Jewish people kept getting married and kept having babies, even under the most awful circumstances you can imagine. Friends, some people, the New Testament tells us, are given the gift of singleness. That is, it's God's plan that some would be without a spouse, not in any way, shape, or form, without purpose, without significance, without value, not any less of a man or a woman, but intentionally single. If you're interested in this, have never heard of it, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says that God gives the gift of singleness for the purpose of heavier investment in godly service. And yet, throughout the course of church history, that's, that's the exception, not the norm. The majority of people get married at some point. That's healthy. Husband and wife is the basic building block of society. We live in an era of time in which that's no longer believed. But the fact that marriage pictures the Christ in His church is really important to the watching world. If people chose to still get married as refugee slaves in Egypt, I hope even with all the crazy stuff happening in our society, that we as a congregation would still be pro-marriage and that we would be pro-singleness for those who want to be single. Crises, hardship, and a scary world are no reason to give up on marriage. These two model that for us. Let's read on, verse two. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So this unnamed couple got married, and then one glorious day, the news came. I'm pregnant. I wonder if it felt like glorious news, given the edict. That's, this has been happening a wee bit around here. I don't know if you've noticed. Megan, how many babies are around? Four more in the oven. Seven in babies in one. So, God is still multiplying us. And that's wonderful, isn't it? We love little kids. But ladies, imagine being a Jewish woman pregnant in Egypt. And this is long before ultrasound. And so you're wondering, is this, is this going to be a boy? And, and if he's a boy, what's going to happen to him? I'll do my best to protect him. But all the Egyptians have been told to get rid of this kid. Imagine living with that for nine months. God, what if it's a boy? Can I handle that? What do I do? What do you do? Eventually, that roller coaster would end with labor and delivery. Only in this case, we'll find in just a moment, for the roller coaster to continue because this is a boy. Now, verse 2 has this weird word. Um, I, I think if, if <laughs> it sounds to me like this uh, when she saw that he was a fine child. <laughs> 
It's a very odd translation. Obviously, this doesn't mean Moses came out attractive. (laughs) But what does it mean? Probably, there's two things it could mean. It may mean simply that he was a healthy child. After all, pre-modern medicine, up until only, I mean, not all that long ago, lots and lots and lots of kids died at birth. So it may mean simply she looked on her son and he was healthy. There is another possibility. If you notice the, the construction of that sentence, it does remind us of something in Genesis chapter one. There's a rhythm in Genesis one where this phrase is used, and God saw that it was good. That is the same phrase, same Hebrew words used in this sentence. So what the Hebrew phrase actually says is, and she saw that he was good. Same terminology. Now, not meaning what you think about your kids. My kid's perfect. He's morally pure. Not true. Every kid is born in sin. But meaning that God would do a special creative, new good work through him. Frankly, I'm not sure whether it means he's healthy or it's hearkening back to Genesis 1. But either way, I do want to show you later in this passage a parallel in Genesis that's absolutely certain. So this new mom has her son and hides him, never leaves the house. Every time he makes a peep, she starts nursing him again. Everything's hush-hush. They have padded the walls with blankets. They've gone in the darkest place in the house. No one, she wants no one to know because the word might get to the Egyptians. But those of you who've had a kid know that's not gonna work very long. Those of you especially who've had a boy know them suckers are loud. This is not gonna work very long. And so sure enough, eventually a day comes, he's simply too big, too noisy, too loud. And so this mom, who we don't know her name at this point, (coughs) decides we've got to go public with this boy. Look at verse three. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with pitamen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And her sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, at first glance, mom's actions seem a bit insane, don't, don't they? Who drops their three-month-old off in some kind of something at the Salt River and leaves him? That's crazy. But what choice did she have? The Egyptians were killing the Jewish boys. Maybe leaving him at the river is akin in our culture to taking a baby you can't take care of and leaving him at the fire station or outside the hospital. Maybe that's the equivalent. 
as she put him in the basket, what were her hopes? What did she long for? What did she expect? What did she even think were the possibilities? Maybe she thought he's going to float down this river far enough that he'll get away from the big city and maybe someone will find him and they, they won't want to kill him because maybe Pharaoh's not there very often. Maybe the soldiers aren't around there. That would make sense, but we don't know because the passage doesn't tell us. So I think it's best not to speculate. But what we do know is much later in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, in this long list of people in the Old Testament who acted by faith, she shows up there along with dad. And we're told that by faith, they hid this child and they weren't afraid. They were courageous. Not because they had the temperament for it, but because they knew a God they trusted. And then they took this child and put him in the basket. And it says they did this by faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is mental agreement with certain facts. And, if we want to do a math equation this morning, it's mental agreement that something is true plus active trust. The the two together are the substance of faith. They understood, mom and dad, that God is sovereign and good. And so they trusted him with their boy. Now, not trusted him in the sense of God somehow had guaranteed them that this boy would survive, but trusting in the character of God that God would do what's best for this particular situation. I wonder, brothers and sisters, what are you trusting God for or with like that? Not trusting Him in the sense of wishful thinking and not what's so popular today, not trusting that if you speak something into existence, then it's going to happen because the universe is going to work on your side if you really say something you mean. Not that. That's ridiculous. But rather, what are you trusting God by faith that God will do what God deems best with that you don't have an answer for, that only God can do? In what area of your life as a Christian do you have the humble confidence God is good, He's sovereign, and therefore I'm going to trust Him with this? I'm going to believe that about His character, I'm going to act in faith, and then whatever He does, He does. And I'll live with it knowing it's right because He did it. One author describes this in a way I think is really, really helpful. He says, faith receives more than it expects. Faith receives more than it expects. Biblical faith, real trust, believes that at the end of the day, God will do what's right from his perfect vantage point because God never makes mistakes. And so we, by faith, believe Him and trust Him. 
And the crazy thing about that is not crazy at all. It's that when we put faith in God, then ultimately, I don't mean in every tiny little thing and I can see it and connect the dots that day, but ultimately, real faith always receives more from God than is expected. Because God is benevolent and he has endless storehouses of good, wonderful, gracious, merciful things to give. Especially the good of making us more and more and more Christ-like. So this baby's mother had faith in God's power and his goodness and wisdom and sent him on that river not knowing the outcome. It's an incredible moment. Now, I mentioned there's a, another parallel, or another, if the first one that good, if that's really talking back to Genesis 1, that's amazing. But in this verse, in verse 3, there is a parallel that is without question. That is super cool. You'll notice that it says that she took, a, a took and put him in a basket. The Hebrew word for basket is only used in one other story in all of the Bible. And it's used 24 times in the other story. Just imagine this. God told some crazy guy, at least that's what everybody thought about him, build an ark. And what will happen through that ark is I will deliver you. I will rescue you, and I'll do so for my glory, says God, and to preserve a new people for myself. It's the same word. There is no question that the author of Moses is telling us, just as God rescued Noah on the water for the good of a new people, maybe God will rescue this baby boy too for his good purposes. Isn't that cool? Biblical faith, real trust, believes in God, that God is a rescuer. Yet for now, as far as we know in the story, there's simply a helpless baby boy stuck in a basket, scraping along the sides of the reeds of the bank of a river. So what's going to happen to him? Read on with me in verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, that behold is so amusing to me, Behold, the baby was crying. No, duh. He's trapped in a basket. Along comes one of the princesses. Now, there's no way we can definitively know this for sure because we aren't even 100% confident who this Pharaoh was. But if it's the one most historians seem to think it is, this guy had dozens and dozens and dozens, maybe even over 100 daughters. 
He was not what you call exactly faithful to one woman. And one of these women comes down. They didn't have showers. So she comes down with her protection to shower at the river. And noticing a basket in the reeds, she says, what is that? Get that. Bring that over to me. And over comes this basket, and the princess opens it, and she finds a baby in tears. Now, I'm going to keep saying this because I want you to try to learn to read your Bible this way. Imagine you could hear the music like you do in a movie telling you what to feel in this moment. This wouldn't be soft and sweet. No, this is terrible. Of all people to find that baby in the reeds, somebody directly connected to Pharaoh? This is horrible news. This is one of the worst possible people who could have found him. Why? Because she knows exactly what kind of man Pharaoh is. Dictators throughout, church, throughout history have no problem at all offing family members who don't obey them. And so she sees this baby. There's no question in her mind what Pharaoh commands. Death to this boy. No questions asked. But look at the rest of the verse. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Pharaoh's daughter, accustomed to the finest lifestyle the world had ever known up to this point. And worldly speaking, she is light years better, far better than a lowly Jewish slave. And yet, in a way that is only explicable by the miraculous, she felt compassion. Pity sounds like a negative, pejorative word. I think we better get the sense of this if we understand it. She felt compassion. Well, no duh, you might be thinking. Of course she felt compassion. There's a baby stuck in a basket, floating down a river. But consider what it would cost her, potentially, to act on that compassion. Remember who she is. Again, dictators have no trouble getting rid of their kids. Her very life could be at stake if she didn't simply take him and toss him in the water. And yet she holds that basket, is overwhelmed with compassion, and says out loud, this is one of the Hebrews, a Hebrew's child. Look at verse 7, then his sister, his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? Big sis to the rescue. She can tell somehow this princess doesn't want to murder this baby. And so in comes sis with a brilliant solution. 
but a very risky one. She has apparently been following along, wondering what's going to happen to my brother. And she's young enough that she's not been made a slave yet, and she's been unnoticed. And then she pipes up. Boy, I could see this happening in our family, Jill. Our daughter has no trouble piping up. (laughs) Pharaoh's daughter had compassion. But would she defy Pharaoh? Verse 8, Pharaoh's daughter said to him, to her, So the girl went and called the child's mother. Just a single word, go. But there's so much in that word. Imagine big sis coming, racing home, running as fast as she can, her heart beating out of her chest, bursts through the door, mom, 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 you've gotta come now, you're never gonna believe this. So mom comes running. They make it together down to the riverbank. Oh, to have been there as those two are arriving at the water. And mom does not know what's going to be the outcome. They're there, sweaty, trembling, expectant. Verse 9. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. I know a lot of you know this story, but this is absolutely incredible. The mom who put the baby in the little ark gets him back. And not only does she get him back, she gets paid to raise him the next couple of years. Moms, how many of you are going to try that? (laughs) Paid to nurse? Paid to hold? Paid to pray for your kid? Paid to... See him come to walk? Now, yes, she knows eventually, when, when we're past the age at which we don't nurse anymore, and theirs was much later than ours is today, there was no going to fries and buying formula. And there was a scarcity of food. So it was not uncommon at all to nurse till you four or five. But she knows eventually he's going to be entrusted back to this princess. He's going to get an Egyptian education. He's going to grow up from that point on in the, in the palace, but for now. Oh, my goodness. I've got my boy, and i got some money. It's amazing. Now, this is a super cool story, but why in the world is it in the Bible? I mean, are we just supposed to feel warm fuzzies? 
go home encouraged that there is one kind, compassionate person in power in the world? Is this the ultimate Mother's Day text? Or is there something else up? Verse 10 tells us, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son by virtue of adoption, he means. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. There, are, there is a Hebrew word and an Egyptian word that the mix of the two in some way, shape, or form connects to something that sounds like being drawn from water. Well, this is why the verses, this is why that whole story is in the Bible, of course. This is Moses' origin story. As we move our way through Exodus, we'll find that he will become the most significant human agent involved in the Jews escaping from Egypt. And not only is he important in the book of Exodus, he's a key figure in the entire biblical story. People still talk about him today. The world's greatest monotheistic religions who disagree on all kinds of things, all hold back to Moses being of massive importance. Exodus chapter 2 teaches us that the, the one God would raise up to deliver his people out of Egypt, the one God would take to be the rescuer, to rescue them out, would have to be rescued himself first. And furthermore, the child Moses not only survives Pharaoh's murderous decree, but he ends up adopted into the very home from which the edict came to kill him. The irony here is palpable. Through the subversive actions of his own daughter, Pharaoh ends up paying for shelter, food, and care for the boy. And then he ends up embracing him into his home. There were probably so many kids he didn't even notice what was going on. And young Moses learns things he would very much need to know and understand later in order to be able to go back into that Pharaoh and say, God says, let my people go. Oh, the sweet, ironic, unstoppable providence of God. Think of what just so happened to bring this about. The, a brave mom in faith hid her precious infant. And it just so happened that no one heard him or saw him for three months. This brave mom then put him in the river. And Pharaoh's daughter just so happened to come along and miraculously had compassion on a tiny foreigner. Big sis just so happened to have the guts 
to say, well, I can go find a Hebrew. I could keep going on and on and on through the story, but you get the point. God is the unseen but all-powerful actor, the lead actor in this story. You see, salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord is working all this out. And so what, is this, what, what do these 10 verses tell us? What do they teach us? Well, the main thrust, the main meaning we need to draw from these 10 verses is this, God providentially delivers His people. And He very, very, very often does so through shocking means. I mean, who would have ever come up with this story? It's nuts! God providentially delivers His people often through shocking means. In a most shocking way, God delivered the baby from certain death, raising Moses to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt. God providentially oversaw every little detail. This is what God always does. God oversees every little detail. He's in charge. He's in control. Why? It's who he is. And how does he use that power? He harnesses it to deliver his people. That's what he's about. God is faithful to his covenant promises. God is a rescuer. God is a deliverer. God delights in making himself known through taking people who never could fix their situation and giving them things they never imagined could be true. All because he's merciful and gracious and marvelous. This is the God we know, amen? He leverages his redemptive power for his glory and the good of his own. And the more shocking the means God uses to deliver, the better because it makes it ever more obvious only God could do that. Now, I know it's early. It's 10.27 on a Sunday morning. But does that make you think of anything else in the biblical story? God bringing about a deliverance through a shocking means that no one would have come up with. That sound familiar? Good job. Me too. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes the good news of Jesus' death on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the word of the cross, that is the gospel, that the heralding of what was accomplished in Christ's death. The word of the cross is folly. That is, it's crazy, insane, stupid. Why would anybody ever believe that? It's shocking. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who belong, who, the, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
The idea that the God-man, Jesus Christ, would be nailed to a cross, hoisted in the air, become the object of God's just punishment in place of sinners, and that then miraculously on the third day, He would come back, not a resuscitation, but as a new creation, the first of the new people of God that many in the room are today and that are all over the world. That this one would die as our substitute in order to have our unrighteousness and sinfulness given to Him and His perfection, His status as a righteous one who obeys God given to us and that that would happen through a bloody cross, that is the most shocking truth that exists. And you would be an absolute moron to put your faith in that, unless it's true. And it is true. You see, whereas God delivered the baby, from certain death, raising up Moses to deliver his people out of Egyptian slavery. Jesus gave himself to certain death, rising as the deliverer who brings all of God's people out of a far more serious slavery, namely slavery to sin that results in eternity apart from God. God providentially delivers his people through shocking means. Friend, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, that is, you've never come to a point in life where you've recognized, I am a mess and I can't fix this mess. But that Jesus Christ, I, I, I do actually mentally agree that happened. If you never reached that point and in humbleness said, God, I want to follow you. I've been following me and it's not working. You are Savior. You are Lord. You are Christ. I turn from trying to be in charge. And I admit that I have sinned against you. I've failed to obey. And I confess this Jesus to be the one who is my deliverer. And friend, in that moment, you are rescued out of bondage to that which you could never have made yourself free from. This is the word of the cross, the gospel. And this news is accessible and available to you if you would but turn from sin and trust in Him today. Maybe you're not quite there. You've got some questions. If so, that's totally fine. There are people all around this room who have reached that point, and they'd love to talk to you. Talk with whomever you came with. Turn to the person next to you when I finally be quiet and ask him or her, do you believe that? Tell me more.
You can trust God. You can take him at his word. And church, I pray this morning that we would marvel today at the handiwork of God. That we would be amazed that he could bring this about. It's astonishing. That we would marvel especially at his ability to use all things to bring about our deliverance. Christian, God is ever committed to us for his namesake. Therefore, we worship him, we trust him, we obey him. And remember these people in this story, they, they didn't know the outcome. And so our lives today, as we look at our present circumstances, there's a lot of complex, difficult, bizarre, hard, not understandable stuff. And if, you don't have, if you're not having those kind of things today, get ready. They're coming. It's a natural part of living in a fallen world. And yet, God, from His perfective viewpoint, is watching and working to bring about all things for your good. Marvel at the providence of God. This is among the sweetest truths that exist. That you don't have to manage and control and manipulate, as if you could, all the circumstances of your life. Take what you know, faith, what the scriptures say, and sit down in trust and confidence in God. Act in a way that seems best as you aim to obey Him and use wisdom collected among the people of God. And trust Him. He's trustworthy. This morning we'd like to especially remember the shocking way in which Christ died. The scandal of the cross by observing the Lord's Supper. And so, in just a minute, we'll stand and we'll sing together while the elements are being passed. I want to encourage you to take the bread and cup and hold it, and we'll all observe together. If you're a follower of Christ and you're a member of some church, then we would invite you to take those elements and to remember in them the shocking, amazing way in which Christ gave his life for us, that we would know him and grow up in him and spend eternity with all the people of God forever. And if you're not a believer, you've not made a commitment to some church, we encourage you simply let those elements pass and to, to pray. And frankly, as weird as this sounds, to watch us, to ask God to speak to you about the significance of all of this. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Father, this is an amazing story. Thank you for providentially recording it that we might today know exactly what it is you did in delivering Moses, that you would then use him later to deliver Israel, 
and that He would point forward to the greatest deliverance imaginable, the rescue out of separation from you, the deliverance out of sin. As we sing today, Lord, we pray that we would be overwhelmed with your kindness and goodness and providence to us, and that we'd be reminded of how you've united us together as a family to help each other stick with Christ and grow up in Him. We thank you that Jesus' body was broken and His blood was shed, that wicked sinners could be, by means of the gospel, righteous saints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.